Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news for you listeners, all of our episodes are now available on the TuneIn app. All the episodes available there five days early. So download the TuneIn app and listen for free. Hey everyone, joining us today in the studio is Blaine Harden. He is the author of this new book, King of Spies. He's also the former Washington Post bureau chief, East Asia bureau chief. He's covered the Korean Peninsula and parts of East Asia for years and years. And you're joining us to talk about your new book and also how we should be processing what's happening in North Korea right now. So thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So um, congratulations on the new book. I want to talk about that in a moment. I wanted to start off the same way we always do, which is to learn a little bit more about how you came to have such an interest in this region and in this incredible character in the book. So tell me a little bit about you. Where are you from? How'd you get into this line of work? Well, I'm from Eastern Washington State, um, but I spent almost all my life as a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post mm -hmm. in Africa, Eastern Europe. Uh, I worked in New York City for a while, um, Seattle, and also uh, East Asia, 2007, 2010, in mm -hmm. East Asia, covering, mostly covering North Korea. And the reason I got interested in North Korea so much was my boss, David Hoffman, the foreign editor of the Washington Post, he said, I want you to cover North Korea, and if you don't want to cover it, I'm going to bring you home. <laughs> so I focused, it's not really a choice, I it? focused on it, and it, it, was, it was hard slogging, it still is hard slogging. But um, North Korea is, you know, the longest lasting totalitarian state in the history of the planet. Yeah. 70 years almost. And um, there's nothing like it. And it shows no signs of going away. In fact, in recent months, it's shown that it has a new weapon, a new weapon system for the game that it's been playing for, for 50 years. Uh, nukes and long-range missiles. And what they do is allow them to expand the playing field mm -hmm. of the extortion that they have been playing against South Korea and against Japan. The extortion was, leave us alone or we'll hit you with our artillery. That was the, the, what they have threatened Seoul with mm -hmm. for decades. And in the past five, five to ten years, they've been able to hit most of Japan with medium-range mobile-launched mi missiles. Mm -hmm. um, and in the past couple of years, they've been able to put nuclear warheads on those medium-range missiles. Now, it's clear that they either have or are close to having long-range missiles with warheads that could conceivably hit the United States. Um, so the game that they're playing hasn't changed, but the tools that they're using have, and all of a sudden, uh, Washington, average Americans, are genuinely interested in North Korea. Mm -hmm. And the, you mentioned the game they're playing hasn't changed, but the world in which they're doing it certainly has. But I want to go back to one of the earlier things you mentioned about how when you first started reporting on it, it was a hard slog, and I'm sure it is now too. What, what is it actually like from a journalist's perspective to try to get information, well, to try to report on it? It's very difficult to go there. Yeah. I went there once in 2008 w with the New York Philharmonic in a 747 full of musicians and journalists. That was your way in. That was my one trip that I, the Washington Post, New York Times reporters rarely get in. Uh, it's, it's an event when they do, and I got in once. But the way that uh, the West has really learned a lot about the texture of life in North Korea in the past 15 years is from uh, defectors. Mm -hmm. um, more than 30,000 of them have found their way through China 
into South Korea. And they live in and around Seoul, mostly, but across South Korea. And they are a paranoid bunch. And they meet someone who looks like me, uh, and they're terrified because they've been taught in North Korea that Americans are dangerous killers. Um, so getting information from these people uh, takes tremendous amount of time and patience and great translators. Um, and so that's the slog part of it, was to win the trust of these people and then understand how they lived. The first book I did about North Korea was a, a, an escapee from a concentration camp, mm -hmm. Shin Dong Yuk. Um, and then the stories have sort of built on each other since. This current book, which is really an American book, it's about an American spy who spied in, in Korea for 11 years. I learned about this guy who was, until this book is published, lost to history, basically. I learned about him from a North Korean fighter pilot who was the subject of my last book. And his name was No Kam Suk. His name is now Kenny Rowe, and he lives in Daytona Beach in Florida, where all pilots go to retire. <laughs> uh, but he uh, stole a MiG in 1953 from his great leader, Kim Il-sung, and flew from Pyongyang to South Korea. Very short flight, about 17 minutes, because he was going so fast. Mm -hmm. um, and he landed the MiG, which the Americans were very interested in, because the MiG had been the the killing weapon right. of the, of the uh, communist side mm -hmm. in the Korean War. He landed the MiG, and the Americans were very happy to see the MiG, and he said, take me to your leader. And the leader they took him to was a spy named Donald Nichols. So this is the man at the heart of this story. Right. And this also gets to the bigger idea you just talked about, which was why North Koreans see America the way they do, which I found fascinating. So start, so start with the book. Tell me about Don Nichols and what you found out about him. Well. The Americans before the Korean War knew nothing. They had no real business interests in Korea. Missionaries had been there. Um, and in 1945, at the end of, the, uh, end of World War II, the Russian army, the Soviet army, was poised in Manchuria to take all of the Korean peninsula, or so the Americans thought. So a couple of colonels at night in August in 1945 got out a National Geographic map drew a line across the Korean Peninsula, the 38th parallel. Completely unofficial, had nothing to do with the politics, the geography, the reality of life in North Korea. They, it was an artificial line. And the Americans said, in their imperial way, you take the north to Stalin, we'll take the south. An arbitrary line, though. And that's how North and South Korea came to be created. Each of these states became puppets of the two emerging superpowers. The puppet in the north was Kim Il-sung, the man who became the great leader and the grandfather of Kim, Kim Jong-un, who is now uh, threatening us with nuclear-tipped missiles. Mm -hmm. So that was the north. We had a puppet state in the south, South Korea, led by a 70-year-old man named Sigmund Rhee, who had spent decades in the United States, spoke superb English, had a PhD from Princeton. He was probably the most educated South Korean on the planet. Very smart guy, but not a very manipulable puppet. He, in fact, he was really a, a total pain for the Americans. So he was placed in power in the South. Right. So that's the context. Right. And soon as that division happened, a civil war started that Americans didn't pay any attention to. But it was a really bloody mess. Uh, Sigmund Rhee's government, supported by the United States, 
was basically giving power to the landed people who had worked with the Japanese who controlled all of the Korean Peninsula. It's a complicated story. But in any case, the Americans were on the side of the propertied classes. The working people, the poor people of South Korea, they wanted land reform, they wanted lots of things, but the American-controlled government didn't give it to them, and so the, the people who wanted it went to war. A lot of them were allied with North Korea, a socialist communist regime. Mm -hmm. And the Civil War killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and in the war, uh, Donald Nichols became a player. He was 23 years old when he got there. He met Sigmund Rhee, who was 70. But they found light in each other's eyes. Um, Donald Nichols had, he could say that he was the American intelligence official who had complete access to the South Korean government and to all its spying capacity on the North. Now, how did this 23-year-old get into such a position there of was power? Really, was it just the it basis was, of a it personal was a vacuum. relationship? He walked into an empty room, basically. So like right place at the right Korean. time. He was really aggressive, really smart. <laughs> he had a seventh grade education, but he understood power. And so he, he became Sigmund Rhee's son. They called each other father and son, believe it or not. Um, Sigmund Rhee, to consolidate power, uh, he wanted as much to control North Korea as North Korea wanted to control the South. Sure. He was a, he was a pretty belligerent guy. Mm -hmm. um, Nichols worked with him, trained his police, and over the next five to six years, the South Korean police and military killed about 100,000 South Koreans who they suspected were sympathizers with the North. It was a bloody business. Uh, people were tortured. People's heads were cut off and delivered in jerry cans to Donald Nichols' office. And Donald Nichols was very much at the helm of much of this. He was intimately involved in extracting intelligence for his reports from all of this that was going on. At the same time, he was invisible. His name never appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post. And he was really invisible to history until the end of around 1998. A few specialist books started to mention him. Mm -hmm. But they really never understood the scope and the depth of his involvement. But he was also an incredible, he was so, he was so prepared for war. Uh, he had resources, he had spies all up and down the Korean Peninsula, in the north and in the south. The Korean War broke out in mm -hmm. the summer of 1950 to the shock and horror of the Truman administration when Stalin gave the okay to Kim Il-sung. And the okay included a few hundred tanks and a massive amount of weapons. So they marched into South Korea and totally kicked the Americans' butts for about four or five months. And it was in this desperate period of retreat, a massive loss of life for the Americans, that Nichols was a war hero. He won the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second most uh, important medal for valor. He mm -hmm. won the Silver Star, and he won more than 20 other medals for valor. And that was because he had worked himself into such a crucial position he was, that he became a spy master He was insanely there, right? brave as well. Oh, he really? simply didn't worry about dying. Um, so he was incredibly important. The thing that he did that was the single most important uh, achievement of the war, which was reported new in this book, is that he found a team of North Korean codebreakers mm -hmm. who had defected to the South before the war started. He had them organized working for the South Korean uh, government as codebreakers. 
And then once the war started, he huddled with them in the southern tip of the Korean Peninsula, where the Americans were basically surrounded by the North Korean army and in danger of losing the entire peninsula. But they had the code books for the North Korean uh, army's battle plans. And with those Koreans and their great work, they got 48, 24 to 48 hour notices on any incursion into the Busan perimeter at the southern end. And so they managed to hold off until the Americans could get enough reinforcements in and around the Korean Peninsula to destroy Kim Il-sung's army. So he was, played an instrumental role in helping the Americans not lose that war. And he also, as you mentioned, helped with all the most bomb targets as well, the targets yeah. to bomb. He played such a crucial role, and it's, it, it's an incredible story that hasn't really been told before. Yeah. But there, I want to get back to this other idea you mentioned earlier, which was how this helps reveal to some degree why this animosity exists between North Korea and the state. So right. what was the messaging that went out to North Koreans about how Americans should be viewed right. at that time that you say is why right. they feel the way right. they do today? Well, the way the war un unwound was that the Americans were caught with their pants down. Uh, they didn't have hardly any uh, military capacity in the country and it took several months for them to bring in a viable war machine. Mm -hmm. But it was you know, this, this was the country that had recently fought World War II, and they had lots of bombers, they had lots of trained pilots, they had unlimited amount of conventional bombs, and unlimited amounts of napalm. Um, so in response to this violent uh, and brutal invasion from the north, the Americans ramped up their air power war machine. And, and responded with and brutal they force and kind. Bomb almost daily yeah. for three years. And they destroyed virtually every city and town in North Korea. Uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was head of Strategic Air Command at the time, he estimated that the Americans killed 20% of the civilians in North Korea. And about two out of 10 million people. You've said something recently about how even though the war happened decades ago, that in North Korea, it's as if it happened yesterday, right, that that is right, where that right. emotion lives. So that bombing was a fact. It's a historical experience that the grandparents of the current people in North Korea all experience, right. their great uncle or whatever. So when Kim Jong-un or his father or his father say, those Americans, well, they, you know, they killed your aunt or they killed your mother or they killed your brother. They know that to be true. And the Kim regime has isolated North Korea and fed them propaganda about the war. It's almost as if that war ended last Thursday, if it ended at all. And now um, that fact-based narrative has found some real zip because of what Donald Trump is saying. And I want to talk about that in a second, but you mentioned earlier something that I find fascinating, which is something I think not a lot of people, they may know, but doesn't really hit home. The Kim family has been running a dictatorship now for 70 years. They are the most successful, if you want to call yeah. it that, dictatorship in the world. So right. what is it about them or this series of circumstances mm -hmm. there that makes them so good at it? How are they able to do it? I think there's three things. One is geography. China on one side. China does not want a U.S. allied United Peninsula on its border. Mm -hmm. Number one. Uh, number two is that it's a Stalinist state that has been more successful in using the brutal tools of Stalinism against its own people 
than any government in world history. Kim Jong-un is just as cruel or crueler to his people than his father or grandfather was. So those tools are political prison camps, mm -hmm. closed borders, control of information, militarized society, um, and massive numbers of secret police. So that, those tools are very much in place. And those so, all help to keep the population yeah, both the popu oppressed and suppressed, right? It is silent. Yeah. Civil society is non-existent. That's the second thing. And the third thing is the extortion game that we started talking about, mm -hmm. is that North Korea has figured out that it can be safe within its borders if it's perceived as being wild-eyed and crazy and warlike. And it constantly makes threats to turn Seoul into a sea of flames or a sea of fire. It's been doing that for decades. And it did that using, and it, made, it backed up those threats with hundreds, thousands of artillery uh, tubes buried within range of Seoul. The people of Seoul were four minutes away from being killed. But now the range, the scope, the playing field of the game has expanded. It's further out to now, right? Most of, most of Northeast Asia, yeah. all of Japan, Tokyo, the biggest city in the world, and now cities of the United States. But see, this is what fascinates me now, because so often when we talk about the North Korean regime, we use words like unpredictable and, uh, you know, oh, he's, Kim Jong-un is crazy, and this is the conversation that goes on about how to view them. Yeah. You seem to be framing it as something much more calculated yeah. and, and much more deliberate, that yeah. this actually works to their benefit to right. be perceived that way. They are really consistent, and their track record is they are getting better at what they do, and they have better weapons to do it with. Periodically, Americans and American political leaders plug in to this threat. It wasn't much of a threat when it was artillery. I mean, people might die, but they wouldn't be Americans. Right. Um, and the threats, the uh, blood-curdling rhetoric that you could hear from North Korea, it really hasn't changed for decades. What's new and what is confusing to the North Koreans is they're starting to hear echoes, reverse echoes, of that <laughs> rhetoric from America's president. So let's talk about that, where we are now, because it's a different paradigm to some degree, right? For the first time, you have an American president who's sort of matching word for word in a lot of ways, if not ramping up the rhetoric as it goes along. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, based on your, your time there, on the amount of time you spend studying the regime and North Korean society. How have you been processing that as you see things ramping up there? Well, I think the North Koreans are really confused. Um, they, they, they believe, I think as, as a lot, I know the South Koreans because I talk to them a lot. Mm -hmm. The South Koreans and, and the North Koreans, they're the same people and I think they, they, they think of a, an American president in somewhat the same way as someone who considers carefully what he says and that what he says reflects a deep uh, um, amount of penetration into what the Americans plan to do in the future. That there's some intention and yeah. plan behind it. And for them to uh, learn that the president is, is tweeting this early in the morning in his golf course. Uh, and saying things that are a complete refutation of what his Secretary of State said 24 hours earlier is incredibly confusing. The Washington Post had a story last week saying that 
uh, Pyongyang has reached out to Republican consultants in Washington and is hoping to hire some and bring them to Pyongyang to talk to the foreign policy analysts so they can figure out what Donald Trump really is up to. To better understand yeah. what they're seeing happening right. too. Yeah. So does so they, that confusion help or hurt America? Well, I th what, who knows? Uh, <laughs> but I do know that it has made <laughs> Not every, a satisfying it answer is, it, is, it has made everybody who, who, who follows this issue very, very nervous. Are you nervous? I'm nervous Why? about it. But you know, I'm not a policymaker. But policymakers who have spent their lives trying to stop or to prevent another Korean War, they're very anxious because they think that the, the words could lead to violence. Mm -hmm. um, th there's a broad consensus about what to do with North Korea. It's th there's you know there's. Uh, you remember the, the movie Argo? Yes. Where there was one very bad solution, <laughs> one very bad idea. Well, the one very bad idea that everybody's agreed on is, well, don't go to war. That's number talk one. Talk to them. Yes. Talk to them, you know, high, talk to them low, talk to them secretly, talk to them publicly. Um, um, spy on them. Prepare for war. Mm -hmm. uh, talk to China. Talk to talk to Russia, don't go to war. Try to do as much as you can to uh, defuse the situation because the amount, the number of people who could die in Seoul and Tokyo now is, is in the millions, if not tens of millions. And it could happen very quickly in a day. Okay, but you mentioned China. I want to ask you about this because yeah. obviously part of the conversation in recent months has been China should be doing right. more. What more could China do as the right. dominant power there? Yeah. Could they actually exert some kind of influence yeah. to help sort of take down tensions a notch? Now, you would think so, that China Maybe. would have lots of influence. Ninety percent, ninety percent of North Korea's trade is with China. Right. All, virtually all its oil most of its food. Um, so you would think that they would jump when China says jump, but in fact that's not the case. Have there been instances in which China has tried to influence in some degree and it hasn't worked? Well, or has they that have never been, really been increasingly uh, angry at North Korea for exploding nuclear devices mm -hmm. and shooting missiles over Japan. <laughs> they say don't do it, don't right. do it. Um, but in fact Kim Jong-un seems to have timed uh, missile launches and bomb explosions to embarrass President Xi. Right. And the history of the, the Kim family in China helps you to understand this tension. Kim Il-sung, the great leader, the guy who created North Korea with the Russians in the 40s, mm -hmm. he grew up in China, spoke really good Chinese, fought with the Chinese communists in the 1930s against Japanese occupiers in Northeast uh, Asia, in Manchuria. Mm -hmm. And in the early 30s, the Chinese, for reasons that aren't quite clear, they turned on Kim Il-sung and his ethnic Korean guerrilla fighters that they'd been fighting with. And they murdered about a thousand of them. And they arrested Kim Il-sung, and he thought he was going to be murdered. And he never forgot it. So. As the years and the decades have gone by in this family business, which the Kim regime is, mm -hmm. that inheritance, that memory, that deep blood memory is one of 
dependence and distrust, cooperation and contempt. Uh, and it was, so, it, was, it was further during the Korean War when Kim Il-sung started this war, lost it, his army was destroyed, his country ceased to exist, mm -hmm. and he was hiding in a bunker when the Chinese came in to rescue him. And the general who was in charge of that rescue, uh, Peng Di Hao was his name, he told Kim Il-sung to his face that you are a childish man and a rotten general and go stand in the corner and I'm going to win this war. But and so that's what Kim Il-sung had to do. And he never forgot the loss of face. After the war was over, yeah. his entire country, his life, his power had been saved by China. But the history, the official history of North Korea credits Kim Il-sung's brilliant generalship for beating the Americans. So there is personal history there. There's, there's personal animosity. Blood. There's bad blood. But there's also, as you mentioned, economic dependence yeah. just to survive. So in it's this a country, crazy relationship. But it's a survival regime, right? They yeah. have to survive in order to keep doing whatever it right. is that they want to do. Right. So this brings me to economic sanctions. Yeah. Would those work? Because, I mean, to the degree that the president has announced them in the executive order, do you mm -hmm. think those are going to have some kind of a, a different impact than previous Well, there's steps been lots taken? of sanctions. And more sanctions will hurt them uh, if, if they're enforced by China, and China is increasingly Right, enforcing, if they're enforced, which is another key part enforcing, of it. Enforcing, uh, but also trade with China has exploded in the past 10 years as sanctions have exploded. So there are a lot of Chinese businessmen who've made a lot of money mm -hmm. on high markup business with North Korea. So does anything ever really change unless China wants it to change? Well, even if China wants it to change, not much changes. Um, the, what China's afraid of, and the reason China doesn't pull the plug on oil, is there are 25 million North Koreans. And if there's a war, a lot and of them are going to stream go. into China. Mm -hmm. And China already has several million ethnic Koreans mm -hmm. in Northeast Asia, in Northeast China. Uh, who, and it would be a big mess for them. So they put up with a very, very sort of, uh, uh, they're, they're extremely unhappy with the Kim family, but they don't really know what to do yet. And also China sacrificed hundreds of thousands of lives. The numbers aren't quite clear in the Korean War. And they're very unwilling to say that that sacrifice was for nothing. Right. It's a tough case to make for your own population too. Yeah. I want to ask you about this, because this is, we're talking about what the potential outcome could be as a result of all these heightened tensions and this sort of difficult situation we found ourselves in with people who want to do something but can't necessarily do something for various reasons. And there was a former U.S. Secretary, uh, Secretary of Defense who said that his greatest concern is that we could blunder our way into war mm -hmm. based on the way things seem to be progressing right now, mm -hmm. which is an, that's an alarming proposition for a lot of people. Do you mm -hmm. think that that could happen? It's possible. I don't know. I, I, I hope not. But the, the, the behavior of the Trump administration is making it more complicated to implement the least bad solution, which is to talk. Um, because th they, they don't know who to talk to, whether to believe what they say, because the president can undermine it the next day with a tweet. But here's the thing about the least bad solution. If that has been the standing policy of the U.S., 
to some degree, that's what got us where we are. And as you said, they have continued to progress with their mm -hmm. weapons, with the mm -hmm. missiles moving from short range to medium range, mm -hmm. now developing long range. They know how to get the weapon mm -hmm. onto the missile right. now. They haven't slowed down. Yeah. So haven't we really just been kicking the can further down for somebody else to deal with it? Well, in a sense, we have. But as we kick the can down the road, people aren't dying. But is there an inevitability in to all of this to some degree? Can't you only kick the can down the road so long? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, totalitarian regimes are rare. They usually don't last very long. This one is the exception. Um, the, Kims, the Kim family are disciplined and skilled at a very dirty business. That, uh, and they're not going away. Kim Jong-un is 33. Um, you know, it is, it, there are no good, swift, clear solutions. You know, it, it's not like, it's, it's just something that requires muddling through. Uh, if you don't want large numbers of people to die in the cities of South Korea and Japan, which are our closest allies in Asia. What do you make of the way President Trump has been tweeting about North Korea, about the way some of this policy and some of this conversation has progressed based on the fact that we've got 140 characters from the, coming from the highest office in the land. Well, it, it's confusing and upsetting to me. I mean, but the expertise, I don't have any more expertise in what Trump does than you do or that everybody does in the street who's watching this presidency unfold. But for um, people in, in, in Asia who are, who are right next door and who really are threatened, they are, uh, they, they're very jumpy. They're very upset, they're very nervous. Um, Do they put real weight behind those words? They don't see yeah, it as all for show yeah. or just rhetoric? Yeah, I, they, I, I talked to a South Korean diplomat recently who, who was just mortified and terrified and confused by the Trump administration. And um, I think that that's a pretty consistent feeling in, uh, Asia. You mentioned the diplomatic channels, that part of the strategy is to talk, to keep talking, to stay engaged, talk high, talk low. Yeah. Those back channels we hear a lot about. Do those really work? Have we been making progress there? I mean, those are still going on to some degree, right? Well, under Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, there were lots of conversations. There were lots of deals. There were lots of deals that went sour. Um, but there were conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, there were uh, summits between the leaders of North and South Korea. Um, none of that's happening now. Kim Jong-un is more aggressive. Uh, he may be setting up uh, a aggressive offensive game and only to negotiate later, but who knows? It, it, it's, it's just not clear. Um, but it, it seems that if you're going to negotiate, you can't undermine the State Department, the people who negotiate, as a matter of course. The, uh, the idea we talked about earlier about why North Koreans see Americans the way that they do through that prism, do you think that it's fair, even all these years later, all these many years after the war, to ascribe that to an entire population, 25 million people, 
Because it strikes me it's very similar to a lot of other conversations we have about other parts of the world. We say, why do they feel this way about right. us or about right. them? Isn't, it's, isn't it a little simplistic to say, well, that is why they hate us. It's because of this history back then when really it's about the regime. It's about this family. Right, right. Well, the, the population of North Korea is captive. It's, it lives in a prison state and it's fed information that's approved by that prison warden. Right. Uh, who's now in the third generation. And so what they know and what they understand about the world is uh, what their leaders want them to understand. Now that's cracking a little bit because of information technology, mm -hmm. more radios coming in from, from, Japan, from China. Um, but still, when defectors come to South Korea, find their way there, they you, they go through sort of a re-education, you know, welcome to the planet Earth and this is how, how it works. And there's a class that they teach on the Korean War. And the teacher says, well, we'll begin with the history of the war. The, the war began when Kim Il-sung, with Soviet help, invaded South Korea. And when the teacher says that, all the students, all the defectors in the room stand up and start shouting because that's not the history they were taught. They perceive the fundamental war, the only war North Korea has ever fought, uh, to be a different war, one where the Americans and the South Koreans sneakily attacked and the Kim family brilliantly won. It's the very foundation of their own country. Is different. Is different. Right, right. So you mentioned the technology making its way across. I know that there's some people from North Korea who are allowed to work outside of the yeah. country to be able to send repatriate funds and that helps to support the North Korean right. economy to some degree too. Is all of that kind of, you know, younger generation starting to get more plugged into cross-border uh, economic dependence and technology, bringing it back, is all of that kind of chipping away it at is. some of the prison yeah. state? Yeah. The, you know, t totalitarian systems need total control. Mm -hmm. And two things that are happening that are on the American side, on the side of freedom-loving people, if you will, um, is, is Information is coming into the country in an unprecedented amount because of USB fobs, uh, DVDs, radio. Um, young teenage girls in Pyongyang, they speak with an affected accent of rich girls in Seoul because they've been watching Seoul or South Korean soap operas. And watching them so much that they've affected the accent. That is wild. So that's a big deal. Right. And that's for the first time. That's never happened that before, was, right? That's been happening for about 10 years. Okay. But it slowly undermines total control. Yeah. The other thing that totally undermines total control is money. Who controls the money? Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed because the Soviet Union was subsidizing North Korea. So with the end of the Soviet Union, uh, in, the, in the early 1990s, North Korea went through a terrible 10 years. Uh, and there was a famine, perhaps a million people starved to death in an industrialized country, mm -hmm. uh, and a general breakdown of the power of the state to feed and provide services to people. And markets sort of arose in that vacuum. Scruffy street markets that have now been more formalized and people are making substantial amounts of money by being captains of industry in these markets that are supplying consumer goods and other things to North Koreans. They have the seeds are capitalism, right? The, That's right. what you're talking about. So there's there. money there yeah. that 
the Kim family does not control, yeah. which is dissidence. And it's a completely new thing. And it's dangerous for the it's regime. It's dangerous for the regime. And as time goes along with more information and more money that they don't control, there's, there's the seeds for a destabilizing of, 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 of this solid rock. So that's is, been there. is that the best of all possible worlds then in terms of U.S. engagement or the rest of the world's engagement with North Korea is keep kicking the can far enough down the line that all those forces that seem to be organically kind of taking place eventually reach a point of equilibrium or, or, or pivot yeah. so that they could overtake and the regime's US, power? And then U.S. policy, the policy of, of the West would be to try to speed that process up. How? How did they do that? Propaganda, radio. Uh, massive amounts of, of information technology smuggled into the country. Person-to-person um, uh, -person exchanges, pay money to bring North Korean opinion leaders to Japan, United States, Western Europe, get them thinking, seeing the world outside of this box. Mm -hmm. um, it's a slow solution. It's not satisfactory. It's not John Wayne and the Calvary. But nobody dies as the process unfolds either. Are you genuinely concerned about the possibility of us going to war? I'm more concerned than I was before. Um, but then, you know, it's the Kim family that's pushing the nukes and the long-range missiles. That's not the, pro the fault of Donald Trump, you know. Um, they are setting up what could be, you know, a global catastrophe. Um, they are, you know, it, it's a gangster state that's very much interested in preserving its, 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 uh, its survival and a, certain, a measure of comfort for those people who are bought into the system who live in, this, in the capital. For an administration that doesn't seem as if they want to wait for things to happen, and who knows where the policy will yeah, go yeah. or, or it's hard things will progress, it is hard to know, as you said. So far, where we are is that deterrence hasn't worked, right? continuing to engage and allowing time to pass and hoping things will change hasn't worked. The trajectory there has remained the same. They developed the weapons, they've got the ways to deliver yeah. them now, we're there. Right. So what would work in the short term? Is there anything else that we could try? I don't think anything will work in the short term. Um, if you try to take out the missiles, try to take out the, the weapons, um, there's a chance, and it's hard to know how high that chance is, that they will perceive an existential threat and kill many hundreds of thousands of people in, in Seoul and in Tokyo. Or, uh, the chances of them hitting the United States now with their, with their missiles are relatively low. I mean, they have a few at maybe the moment, at right? the moment. But as time goes by, they'll have more. Um, they're a nuclear-powered state, and they're never going to not be a nu nuclear-powered state mm -hmm. under this government because it's their, it's their insurance policy. It, Kim Il-sung died when he was 84. He died of a heart attack of natural causes. His father died when he was 69 of natural causes. Now, if, if Kim Jong-un has the same life span, he's 33, we're looking at, we're looking at a, half a century of this with the same guy, the same system. It's not terribly comforting, Blaine. No, it's not comforting. This is your third book, mm -hmm. we should mention, yeah. uh, on or related to North Korea. Right. Um, and, I mean, 
do you have more in you? Are there every time you see is like one of you do one of these books, it leads you to another well, story, it leads you, you to know, another one. Yet. Is there something not that yet. came and I'm, I'm from thinking this? About, I'm thinking about doing something else, but um, are you? I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something else because uh, you know I'm, I'm, you know I'd like to do something else. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting, I think about Dom Nichols yes. in the book, the, the King of Spies. Mm -hmm. The Americans used him uh, for eleven years, and he delivered the goods. Sometimes they were pretty unsavory goods, but he delivered. But finally, the Americans decided that Donald Nichols um, had gone too far. He was probably too close to Sigmund Rhee, who was still in power. Uh, and they came for him in the middle of the night, put him in a straitjacket, and shipped him off to a psychiatric hospital. They said he was mentally ill, the Air Force. He mm -hmm. wasn't. And then they hooked him up to electroshock for several months. And he later said that they tried to destroy his mind and, and destroy his memory. And in fact, they did destroy him as, as a historical figure. He, bis he disappeared from American military history. And we, bet, we did that to him, our government did, secretly. Disappeared until you found him. Until I found him. And told his story. Yeah. The book is King of Spies, The Dark Reign of America's Spy Master in Korea. The author is Blaine Harden, and I thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each of our episodes is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable five days before they're released. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we have made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. And don't forget, episodes are released five days early on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.